0: They sent some of the Pharisees and Heridians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. God, thank you that you see each one of us in this room and you know us more deeply than we even know ourselves. You know that for some of us, we, we sing these songs this morning and our hearts are just bursting with the sense of your goodness and your presence and your, your nearness to us. And God, others of us, we, we, we are in a season of life where it's just, it's hard to even sing these songs because it feels like you are a million miles away and we are wondering when you are going to show up, when you are going to help, when you are going to bring aid or relief. God, some of us, we come into this room and we don't even know what these words mean. This is foreign language for us. Maybe our first time in a worship service in our entire lives. And we have so many questions and so many doubts and so many objections as to why these things could actually be true. God, we are all over the map and yet in another sense, we are all in the same exact place. We are more broken and messy than we know and more in need of your grace than we know. And so we pray that you would come and that you would speak to us now, speak to each of us. God, we do not want to just go through the motions this morning, but we need to hear from you, and we do not need words of human inspiration. We do not need a pick-me-up. We need you to break into our life with your words of life, your words of hope. Only you can talk to us like this, and so we pray that you would. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, I just want to welcome you again. We're so glad that you're here. hope to get to meet you after the service. If you are new, we have been going through a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been talking about the way of Jesus. And let me just sum up the series for you in this way. We have been talking about how when Jesus comes into your life, he does not just change some things about your life he changes everything about your life he changes the way that you think about money he changes the way you think about vocation and work he changes the way you think about your neighbor he changes the way you think about the good life he changes the way that you think about your marriage or your singleness, he changes the way you think about greatness he changes the way you navigate suffering and this morning we're going to see how he changes the way you think about politics. And again, I can just feel the enthusiasm in the room. <laughs> okay. You guys reacted the same way about money a couple weeks ago. This passage is about politics and let me just say that some of you hear that we're going to have a sermon on politics and you're going to say, "Wait a minute." The church The church shouldn't talk about politics. The church should just preach the gospel. And others of you think, I am really glad we're talking about politics. And you know what? I better hear something I agree with this morning. Or else, I don't care how good the donuts are outside. I'm not coming back to this place. Uh, Some of you are wondering, are you going to tell me how to vote this morning? And yes, that'll be our conclusion, actually. No, I'm not going to tell you how to vote this morning. I'm not going to tell you how to vote this morning. Let's go ahead and take that one off the table. Some of you, you're just tired of political talk. You're like, I hear about this, I hear about politics all week. That's not what I want to hear about when I come to church. Listen, we need to talk about politics, and we need to talk about it for two reasons. Number one, the world is talking about it. Our city is talking about it. Everyone around us is talking about it. If we do not talk about it in the church, then we just affirm everyone's perceptions of the church, which is this is an irrelevant social club that has nothing to do with the pressing issues of our world and our city. We've got to talk about it. And, And here's the second reason, and this is even more important. We need to talk about it because Jesus talks about it. And Jesus has something to say about it. Uh, Eugene Peterson the Christian writer once said this, he said the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines but in a way that no one guesses. So what does this passage have to teach us about Jesus and politics and here's what we're going to see today. There's there's really one main teaching of this passage, There's, there's one main principle with three applications. And that's how we're going to unpack this this morning. We're going to look at kind of the main teaching, the, main, the overarching principle, and then three applications. So first, the overarching principle. Okay. In this passage, there are two groups of people who come to Jesus, and it is a very interesting pairing. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Who are these people? The Pharisees were right-wingers. They were morally, socially, and even economically conservative. They were morally and socially conservative because they believed in strict adherence to God's moral law. But they were economically conservative because this was the group of people who resented Roman rule. See, they liked limited government, small government. But the Herodians they were the progressives they're the left-wingers morally socially and economically they supported roman rule which means they liked big government so you have these two groups of people who are on opposite sides of the political aisle left and right and they come to jesus trying to figure out whose side he is on does that sound familiar Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. A lot has changed, and nothing has changed. Because everyone, everyone today is trying to co-opt Jesus into their political party. Let me tell you, I grew up in the southeast. I grew up in South Carolina. And I grew up in a place where everyone said that you could not be a Christian and a Democrat. And then I moved here about 20 years ago. And it just got flipped. It's just the opposite. Everyone is trying to co-opt Jesus. Now, the way that these two groups of people try to co-opt Jesus in this passage is they set a trap for him. So they ask him, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And it's a trap because if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax... Then the Herodians have them have him right where they want him, and the Romans will kill him. But if Jesus says "Yes, do pay the tax," then the Pharisees have him right where they want him, because all of the crowds that have been following him are going to start to turn against them. And Jesus responds to this trap by saying to them, "Bring me a denarius." Now what is a Denarius? A denarius was a coin that was worth about the same amount as a quarter. And this is what you used to pay the tax. And on the coin was a picture of Caesar, the emperor, with two words inscribed around his picture. Two titles, actually. Son of God and King. And you see, this coin, it was was Caesar's way of reminding everyone that he was Lord, that he was God, that he was king, that he had absolute authority. You know, people in the first century world did not just think that Caesar was a political figure. They thought that Caesar was God. Everyone was under him and subject to him. Now, look at verse 16. It says, they brought the coin, and Jesus asked them, whose image is this? Which is an interesting Uh, word there, because the word image is the same word that you get from Genesis 127, very first chapter of the Bible, when God says, let us make man and woman in our image, that we are created, all of us, we are created in God's image, this is the word that Jesus uses here, and then Jesus says, and he says, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, look at what Jesus is doing here. They want a yes or no answer, and Jesus doesn't give it to them. He says to them, the coin bears Caesar's image. And so the coin belongs to Caesar. But you, you bear God's image. And so you belong to God. The coin is Caesar's. And so, yes, pay the tax and give the coin up to Caesar. But you belong to God. So give yourself up to God. Give Caesar your money, says Jesus. But give me your worship. And this is so radical. Jesus is saying Caesar is not Lord. He is Lord. I am Lord, says Jesus. He says, Caesar is not king, I am king. Caesar is not God, I am God. Jesus is saying that he is the one who has absolute authority over everything and everyone. And he is saying the question is not, whose side is he on? Jesus says the question is, who's on his side? And you see, now we're getting to the big principle, kind of the main teaching of the text. And here it is. If you are a follower of Jesus... And I know that not everyone in this room is. And if you're not, we're so glad that you're here exploring this stuff. But if you are a follower of Jesus, it means that your ultimate allegiance is not to any political party or any political candidate or any political cause. But your ultimate allegiance is to him. And therefore, he shapes everything about your life, including Your politics. If you are a Christian, it means that you must see politics through the lens of Jesus and not Jesus through the lens of politics. It means that you must, and I'm I'm begging you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, you must take the teachings of Jesus seriously. Including when it comes to your politics. And you see, the question is, is what does that actually, what does that practically look like in our lives? How does that get worked out? And the answer is, it gets worked out in lots of ways, but I'm just going to give you three that we see in this text. Let me, let me give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them. Because Jesus is Lord, because our ultimate allegiance is to him, number one, we are to have a countercultural unity in the church. Number two, we are to have a confounding witness in the world. And number three, we are to have a confident hope in the king. A countercultural unity in the church, a confounding witness in the world, and a confident hope in the true king. So, first, countercultural unity in the church. There is such division in the world when it comes to politics. And Mark, I think, uses a really interesting word in verse 13, when he says that the Pharisees and the Herodians, look at the text, tried to catch Jesus in his words. Uh, That word catch is what theologians call a hapax legomenon. Everybody say that with me. Hapax legonomy. We didn't say words like that in South Carolina when I was growing up. Still hard for me to say. Uh, It means a hapax legomenon is a word that shows up one time in the New Testament. It's the only place in the New Testament that this Greek word shows up, which means that it is a special word. And the word catch here that is used is actually a word that refers to, uh, it's a hunting term. It's, It's the image of a wild beast that is hunting its prey. The idea is that a violent pursuit is taking place. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing with Jesus. They're not just trying to play a game of tag with Jesus. They are trying to destroy him. And I think that's really interesting because this is exactly what we have done with politics in our cultural moment. We have turned politics into a weapon that we use to destroy people. To demonize people. ...to cancel people. We are in a cultural moment... ...where if someone disagrees with you politically... ...they're not just mistaken... ...but they are evil. And I was, I was reading this week... ...there was a, a study that Stanford did... ...back in 2015. It was, it was entitled... ...Fear and Loathing Across Party Lines... ...New Evidence of Group Polarization. And the premise of the study is this... ...is that polarization is at an all-time high in our culture because of political hostility. here was something really interesting that the study talked about. It talked about how it quoted a study that was done in 1960. Uh, It was a study that asked people this question, who would you be most upset about your child marrying? And the main response to that question was, I would be most upset about my child marrying someone of a different religion or a different race. But when they asked this same question just back in 2015, you know what the main answer was? I'd be most upset about my child marrying someone from a different political party. And if you know anything about all of the racial tension in our country, that is a shocking statement. Our world, our City. It is so divided by politics, but friends, listen the church is meant to be something different. It is meant to be a community of people who embody a countercultural unity, a unity that is not based on the fact that we have shared politics, but a unity that is based on the fact that we have a shared Lord. And I want to say something here. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Uniformity means that we all think the same, and we all vote the same, and we all see things from the same perspective. Uniformity is not possible. Because all of us in this room, we come from different backgrounds and different experiences, which means that we see things differently. Uniformity is not the goal. Unity is the goal. Unity means that we love one another despite our political differences and disagreements. I wanna tell you something, we have people in this church who in the last election, they voted for Joe Biden. And we have people in this church who in the last election, they voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I know we have at least one person in this church who wrote in Stephen Colbert as a writing candidate for the last election. <laughs> But we have people who are all over the map here politically. And I want to tell you something. That is a good thing. That is not a bad thing. That is a wonderful thing. And I want you to hear me say this. No matter who you vote for, you are welcome in this church. Because we are not bound by our politics. No, we are bound by Jesus. Amen. Amen. And here's a question for you this morning. Here's a question for you. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, do you feel like you have more in common? Do you feel more at home with people who share your politics, but not your faith? Or do you feel more at home with people who share your faith, but not your politics? You see, if you are a follower of Jesus and the answer to that question is not the latter, then you have some work to do. And here's the truth. We all have some work to do. We all have some work to do to work towards this counter-cultural unity that is to exist in the church. Let me give you three quick ways we work towards this. Number one, we need to be curious. We need to be curious about our brothers and sisters in this congregation who vote differently than we do. We need to be curious about why people see things differently than we do, whether it is views about policing, whether it is views about the criminal justice system, whether it is views about gun control. We need to be curious. Second, we need to be kind. I have heard people in this church, both on the left and the right, say that they are afraid to share openly about their views for fear that they will be mocked or made fun of. I have heard people on both sides, left, right and middle, say that they have experienced this even in their community group, that they have felt marginalized because of comments people have made about idiots who vote differently. And friends, this should not B. This is the way it works in the world. This is not the way it is meant to work in the church. We need to be kind, and here's the last thing: we need to be humble. You know, to say that Jesus, to say that, uh, to say that Jesus is Lord and, and Caesar is not, is also to say, I am not. It's to admit that every single one of us in this room, we have limits and we have blind spots. It is to confess that none of us see things clearly that we are not right about everything and that all of us have room to grow and to change when I lived in the south you know what everybody on that side of the country thinks they think that everything that is wrong with the country they they think the problem is out here you know what everybody here thinks and I know you're thinking this No, we think the problem is over there. And you see, what the gospel does is it humbles you. It brings a beautiful humility to your life. And it keeps you from self-righteousness because it says the problem is not out there or over there, but the problem is in here. Where else do you find a resource like that than the Christian gospel? Nowhere. Nowhere. Now, here's here's the second application. All right, it gives us a countercultural unity in the church. Second, because Jesus is Lord, we are to have a confounding witness in the world. And I think this is my favorite part of this passage. These two groups come to Jesus, one on the left, one on the right. They come to Jesus and they say, whose side are you on? And Jesus says, neither. And notice what this does to them. Verse 17, I mean, they they are trying to trap him. They, they want to kill him. And yet at the end, after Jesus responds, look at this. In verse 17 it says that they were amazed at him. They, literally, the word is they marveled at him. They were totally confounded. You know where they were confounded? Because Jesus did not fit neatly into either of their boxes. He does not fit neatly into the left or into the right. And if you are a Christian, it means that you must not fit neatly either. What does it mean to fit neatly? To fit neatly means a couple things. It means that, one, you believe your political party has all the answers to the world's problems. To fit neatly, number two, means that you have a hard time coming up with any criticism of your own party. Number three, it means you refuse to acknowledge anything positive from the other side. Jesus and his followers who take him seriously have never fit neatly into one political party or another. And in this way, they have always, they have always had a confounding witness in the world. Let me me take you back for just a moment to the early days of the church, to the first Christians. Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar, and he has done extensive research on the early church, the first three centuries of the Christian church. And he said that when you look at at the early church, there were five marks that distinguished them from the world around them. Here's what they were. Number one... The first had to do with diversity. They were the first racially and ethnically diverse religious group. One of the reasons for that was because they believed that all people, all races, all ethnicities were made in the image of God and they were equal. And so they were attractive to minorities. But they weren't just attractive to minorities, they were also attractive to the marginalized, which is the second mark of these early Christians is that they had a strong care and concern for the poor. There was one Roman Emperor who was an opponent of Christianity. He said these Christians they don't only take care of their poor but they take care of our poor too. Here was the third mark. They were radically pro-life. In the first century, in the Roman, in in, in the ancient Roman world, it was totally legal and acceptable to throw babies onto garbage heaps, especially if they were girls, because they were less prized. They, they actually were not equal. You know what these Christians did? They went around and they found these babies, and they rescued them, and they brought them home, and they took care of them. Here is the fourth thing. They were a sexual countercultural because they believed that sex should only be for marriage. And let me tell you something, before you just freak out about that, okay, listen. This was of particular benefit to women in the first century. If you were a man, if you were a married man, you could have sex with whoever you wanted to have sex with. If you were a woman, you could only have sex with your husband. And you see, that did not just lead to a double standard. You know what it led to? Exploitation and oppression of women. And these early Christians said to this, no. Here was the fifth mark. They were marked by forgiveness. When you tried to kill these Christians, they didn't try to kill you back. They forgave you. They loved their enemies Now, just think about those five things for just a moment. Think about them. Think of the first two. A commitment to racial justice and care for the poor and the marginalized. Who does that sound like today? It sounds like the left. That sounds like progressives. Take the next two. Sanctity of life and sexual ethics. Who does that sound like? That sounds like something that the right is known for. Take the last one, forgiveness. That sounds like something neither side is known for. But the earliest followers of Jesus, they were known for all of these things. They didn't fit the left or the right. They weren't progressive or conservative. They were something else entirely different altogether. And so should we be too. Now, I'm not saying this morning that it is wrong to identify yourself with a particular political party. But I am saying there is no party, there is no candidate, there is no cause in this world that can encompass all the values of the kingdom of God. And you know who has much to teach us about this? The black church, actually. I am so thankful. I did not plan this. Wish I could tell you I was this smart, but I'm not. I am so thankful this sermon on politics is coming on the last Sunday of Black History Month. Because this is one of the greatest gifts that has been handed down to us in the black church. There was an article at the very beginning of this month in the Atlantic by Tim Keller, who was a longtime pastor in New York City. And he talked about this. I think we had this, actually, on a slide. And this is what he, he writes in this passage, in, uh, in this article. He says, the church in the U.S. can grow again if it learns how to unite, look at these two words, justice and righteousness. I have heard African-American pastors use this terminology to describe the historic ministry of the black church. By righteousness, they meant that the church has maintained its traditional beliefs in the authority of the Bible, morality, and sexuality. It calls individuals to be born again through faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. By justice, they meant that the church has an activist stance against all forms of oppression. White Protestant churches in America tend to pick one or the other. He says liberal mainline Protestantism stresses justice but has largely jettisoned ancient affirmations of the Christian creeds, such as the preexistence and the divinity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, and the authority of the Bible. Evangelicalism stresses righteousness and traditional values, but many congregations are indifferent or even hostile toward work against injustice. However, if the church at large could combine these two ideas the way the black church has it can begin to rebuild both credibility and relevance, rebutting the charge that it is merely another political power broker. A church that unites justice and righteousness does not fit with the left or with the right. Instead, it is a community that addresses the timeless longings of all people for meaning, hope, love, and salvation. What I want to ask to us this morning is, What if we were this kind of community? What if we were this kind of community? Can you imagine how confounded people in this city would be? They would be going, who are these people? Where do these people come from? We have never seen a group like this. Can you imagine the impact that this would have on this city? Can you imagine the hope that people would have coming to know that the God of the universe loves them, knows them, came into this world, lived and died and rose again for them? Can you imagine the hope that that would bring to people who feel like they have no hope, who feel forgotten, who feel overlooked, to know that God has not forgotten them, to know that God has not overlooked them? Can you imagine the restoration That would come to neighborhoods in this city that are ravaged by violence and generational poverty? Can you imagine the extent to which people would be set free? They would begin to have access to resources that they have never had access to. Can you imagine the way that people who feel overlooked would be advocated for? Can you imagine the way that families would be strengthened? The way that oppression would be pushed back. Can you imagine the healing that would come to Oakland if justice and righteousness were to reign? Let me tell you something. You know what that would be like? It would be like the kingdom of heaven coming on this earth. And then we pray this every week. How are we going to be this kind of community? And that brings us to the last application. Because Jesus is Lord, we have a countercultural unity in the church. We have a confounding witness in the world. And last, we have a, a, a confident hope in the true king. Now, I want you to look at verse 15 here. When Jesus starts talking about this coin with Caesar's image on it, this, this denarius. Remember, it was worth about a quarter, a little less than actually, about 18 cents is what, is what uh, scholars say today. It's worth nothing. And I want you to notice That Jesus, when he starts talking about this coin, he has to ask them to bring him one. Why does Jesus have to ask them to bring him one? Because he doesn't have one. He doesn't even have a quarter. Jesus said it this way, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. This is a king without a quarter to his name. You see, Jesus is a king, but he is unlike any king... ...that the world has ever seen or ever ever known. All earthly kings, they are rich and they are powerful. But Jesus is the king who left his riches... ...and who gave up his power. And, you know, on the surface... It seems so silly to put your hope in someone like this. Someone who did not have a quarter to his name. Who is a vagabond carpenter in the first century. But would you consider this? Every other king and every other kingdom that the world has ever known has come crumbling down. And there's a long list of them in history a long list the babylonian empire the roman empire the mongolian empire the british empire all of them were once the most powerful kings and kingdoms and now they are all gone at best they all lasted several hundred years and i know this is hard to believe but i want to tell you something the same will be true of our country It will not be this way forever. Just give it enough time and it will find its way onto that list. None of them last forever. None but one. In his first coming, Jesus came in weakness. But in his second coming, he will come in power and in glory and he will reign forever and ever. In justice and in righteousness. I love the way that Isaiah 9 puts this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it, listen to this, with justice and righteousness from that time on forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Today is an opportunity for every single one of us in this room to put our hope in God. To put our hope in God is to confess that no political party can accomplish this. To put our hope in God is to confess that no political candidate can accomplish this. Sure, they can help, but they cannot accomplish this. Only God Can accomplish this you know I kind of I kind of chuckle whenever election season rolls around because what you have is and you know I've listen my uncle was a US senator okay so I'm not hating on like political people but most politicians most politicians tend to make very big promises when election season rolls around the reality is if politicians were honest they would say something like this vote for me because I think I can make things marginally better And Jesus shows up and he says, I've come to make all things new. Not just better, I've come to make all things new. And that's what this table is about. On the one hand, this table points us back to all that Jesus has done for us in his life and in his death and his resurrection. And it says that you are welcome to this table, not because you have been a good person... And not because you've had a good week, but because Jesus has made a way for you. But this table also doesn't just point us back. It points us forward to the day when Jesus will return. And he will make all things new. And justice and righteousness will be the song that we sing for eternity. And I want you to know something this morning. If you have never known this God, if you have never put your hope in him, you can do it this morning. He invites you to come, to look to Him, to trust in Him, to put your hope in Him. On the night in which He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, and He blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the great hope that we have in you. And Jesus, we long for the day when you will return and you will make all things new. And I pray that you would use this table and this meal this morning to fill us with great hope. God, if we have been paying any attention, the world around us is hurting so deeply. Our city is hurting. Things are so broken. Things are so messy. And it is so easy to lose hope, it is so easy to lose sight of the promises that you have made to us and to feel overwhelmed and overcome but this table says that we are not overcome, it says that Christ overcame and that one day we will too and I pray that you would fill us with that hope this morning because we so desperately need it.